Cradeline Network. the 24th episode of Big Bad One. My name's Conrad, alongside my friend Eli, and this is the podcast where two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode, we're covering the Meg Volume 2, issues 13 and 14, cover dates October 17th and 31st, 1992. This episode, Mechanismo is on the job. Armitage is going to both the underworld and royalty. We'll finish Calhab Justice and check out further adventures of Judge Hershey, Judge Anderson, and Johnny Biker. And if you want to read along with us, you find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dread the Complete Case Files 18. Last episode, actually, Eli, we got into a new Judge Dread Case File collection, as well as Judge Anderson the Sci Files and Judge Dread the Magazine 289, 290, and 352. So let's talk about Story One Mechanismo. <laughs> Script robot John Wagner, art robot Colin McNeil, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. All right. Last episode, we saw a prison break, and that led to a trio of perps taken hot, taken a bus full of old people hostage, and a robo-judge Mechanismo was deployed to handle it. Over Dredd's objections, of course. He doesn't like these robots. We all know that. <laughs> the robot advances on the bus, and the perps open fire, but bullets just kind of bounce off its robot body. As it scans the perps and prioritizes targets, blowing the head off one guy who's especially violent. It then fires a smoke grenade into the bus. And as Judge Stitch explains that the robot's got a complex programming, its gun's got a bunch of different bullets, and it's got infrared vision. We see the bot come in and kill another perp while arresting the third that had just kind of a minor record of shoplifting and stuff before. Then punches holes, holes in the roof of the bus to let the smoke out. Yeah, smart. The Elsters are so happy for all of this, they sing for he's a jolly good fellow to the robot, and the crowd all cheers. He gives the surviving perp an additional five years, and Judge Dredd is pissed because, listen, one way, whatever they did, all right, whatever these dudes did, they were humans, and we just let a robot go in, in there and kill them. Like, that's not cool. Stitch explains the process that the, the processes that the robots have to ensure safety, but Dredd won't be convinced and drives off. Later, at Recyc, where all of the dead of Mega City 1 are processed into useful products, um, we see two bodies of dead judges on the conveyor belt as we learn that they were rushed through the academy and then basically killed as soon as they got out on the street. Dredd's being told this by Chief Judge Magruder, who's going to actually show up a bunch this episode. Um, and she says that, like, the judges were still recovering their numbers from Necropolis. And then Judgment Day came. There's just been a lot of death visited on the Justice Department over the last couple of years, you know? Generally, it takes like 15 years to go from fresh recruit to judge. And along the way, you can like from what we've from what I've seen when Dread does training, he'll happily like cashier people who have like a year of training left just because they don't have it. You know, and it's like you're you're out, you know, <laughs> you can't afford that. 
So instead, they got to make up numbers, and that means that these robots can bear the can bear some of the load. And Dread, hearing this, is shocked to learn that there's actually currently ten robots ready, robo judges ready to be deployed. Dread tells Magruder that she's taken leave of her senses. So we see a news report announcing the release, the uh, the street date release of the robo judges. Talks about their ability to arrest and even kill citizens. Trial by robot seems to be the term that we're likened to discuss this kind of thing. A reporter asks, asks Judge Stitch if this is a step too far. And listen, these mechanismos are his baby, so of course he says no way, and even mentions that the robots have even saved a life now that a normal human wouldn't have been. And we learned that story, basically a hover a hover tanker craft crashed into a building and like a robot judge saw it and its robot eyes were able to analyze like that it was full of explosives. And then when there was a kid that almost got blown up, the robot jumped in and protected the kid and its robot body was able to block a blast that a human body wouldn't have been able to. So good times. Save this kid named Hashley. And I should mention also that the explosion was at the uh, Peter Weller low-rise Eli. And Peter Weller is the actor who played RoboCop in the RoboCop movies. We got a, got a, got a connection here, you see. Anyway, can we trust these judges? I think, and I think actually everybody who's involved... Like, again, what I kind of like about... This is something I've t- we, we've talked about, just people being kind of genre savvy in Judge Dredd, you know, like they've seen the movie that's about this situation or whatever, which means that like they know when someone's being possessed or when there's a giant monster on the loose. And so they take, you know, they take appropriate action to those things as opposed to just saying like, oh, no, werewolves don't exist. Don't worry about it or something like that, you know. <laughs> So I feel like everybody's familiar with the fact that like, hey, like we're giving these robots the ability to enforce justice and even like kill people. Like, are we worried about a robot rampage of like duly, (laughs) duly empowered murder bots? And everybody's kind of like, everybody's very a little nervous about these robots because they know it's only a matter of time before at least one of them goes on a on a kill crazy uh, rampage. That's sort of like, and Dredd's like, why are we even doing it then? But everybody else is like, nah, like, listen, if there's only a couple kill crazy rampages, it's fine. You just got to be keep an eye out. That's all. You know, they sort of see it as an egg that's going to be broken on the way to the omelet of robo judges, of a, of a safe, useful robo judges. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm lost in my metaphor now. Um, <laughs> Anyway, in the city, robot number five, and I wonder if this is a movie reference to number five from the uh, Short Circuit movie. But anyway, this robot sees a pickpocket who runs. The robot gives chase as a hover vehicle, sort of watches it all unfold from high in the sky. Five puts some kind of special round into its gun and drops the robber, I think non-lethally, and uh, returns the woman's purse, warning her that if she's not careful, like the next time this happens, he'll arrest her for incitement, which is, of course, a very Judge Dredd thing to do, arresting both the victim and the perpetrator of a crime, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Suddenly, though, a kid shows up out of the crowd with a helmet and toy ray gun and starts shooting imaginary bullets at number five. And again, this is what I'm saying. Everybody holds their breath like, oh, Jesus, this kid's going to get shot. This is terrible. But... (laughs) 
<laughs> Instead, number five identifies the kid and just kind of gives him a pat on the head. Like, yeah, cute kid, move along, citizens, that kind of stuff. Which I think is, and like, even like in the, in the hover base, the person watching this is like, woo, that was a close one. <laughs> but then a report comes in. Number nine, robot number nine is stuck in a loop, smashing a perp against a wall over and over again. Up against the wall, crunk. Up against the wall, crunk. <laughs> they shut it down, and Dread gets the call to handle it. He knows the writing's on the wall. This eventual murder bot rampage has already started. <laughs> Next time, strip search. Yeah, I think this is, I don't know, I'm, I'm enjoying this story, just sort of, again, the genre savviness of just being like, okay, so when, everyone knows it's only a matter of time before these robots go crazy, and we're all waiting for it, I think. <laughs> and just in general, of course, as I've said before, I'm a huge Colin McNeil fan as well, so, you know, sort of hitting, right. hitting my buttons here, you know. Yeah, definitely. And it, same artist that did um, America, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, it is very pretty. Uh, these these painted uh, p- painted characters and backgrounds yeah. and stuff. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. How, how they use light uh, and color is really impressive. It's something I'm mm-hmm. having trouble with my current work, so <laughs> I really appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah, I know. Fun times. But speaking of a less colorful adventure, Eli, in turn, uh, um, in uh, literally, I guess no no lack of colorful characters. <laughs> we go to story two, Calhab Justice. Script robot Jim Alexander, art robot John Ridgway, letting robot Gordon Robson. Okay, we're up in uh, Calhab, which is Dreadworld, Scotland, where Judge Ed McBrain was providing security for a festival between two whiskey clans, but now things are getting hot. As we as McBrain runs out of his room just in time to see one of his partners, Judge Murdo, being run through by an angry Calhaber. Mm. It's tough. There's a whole tar- tartan mob coming at him. And with just McBrain and side Judge Shallion to stand against him. And Shallion doesn't even really want to fight. He's like, can't you handle this, McBrain? He's like, there's dozens of them. Come on. <laughs> the judges are soon swarmed and knocked out. Um, as a dying Murdo just continues to complain about the whole situation, which I like. Belly aching to the last. That's my motto, too. <laughs> McBrain wakes up tied to a board of some kind as the chief of the Campbell clan makes a speech to the assembled clan members. They aren't here for this festival, but for him to reveal that he's got the stolen stone of destiny. And to fully make it theirs, he's going to consecrate it by using it to brain Judge McBrain. Oh, there's a pun. (laughs) The chief, the clan chief tells the judges to prepare to join the spirits. But there's actually plenty of spirits about as we see the ghost of the chief of a of a of a of a the head of clan Campbell's brother chief banger suddenly up, uh, walk into the room and spook him out cuz he's a ghost it scares chief campbell enough that he drops the stone and it breaks in two and shallion says that actually the ghost's only visible to campbell and as um as the chief as the clan chief descends into madness mcbrain's had enough still <laughs> tied up <laughs> He tells the kid with his gun on him. He sort of says, like, hey, like, if you do remember Gib Rock, what we learned about last episode, how they nuked it? If we don't give them the stone, they'll nuke us, too. And that's not going to be good. 
Um, and uh, the, he, he sort of mentions that and combined with the fact that now Chief Campbell has just gone full crazy, chewing on a moose rug and quoting Shakespeare, it's pretty clear that the jig is up. Soon they've got Campbell under arrest as McBreen predicts the return of full hostilities between the different whiskey clans as we see a piper play his bagpipes and then his bagpipes get stabbed by a member of another clan like shut up. <laughs> and finally back at headquarters all well as it ends well as we see the sort of destiny being tossed into some kind of shredder or something and we learn that uh, Chief Campbell will be executed live on Britsit TV. The chief inspector tells McBrain to spare a thought for poor departed Judge Murdo as we see like his angelic form float away. And then he's introduced to his new partner, female Judge Buchan or Buchan, one of those. Anyway, try to keep this one alive. The end of Calhab Justice. <laughs> but it'll be back it's, in December. It felt a little abrupt, but I guess, yeah, they... Did it, I guess. So yeah. That's- yeah. No, this was very much. I was surprised at how at, at how short this one was. Only three three episodes or three or four episodes, I believe. I think I think because the art style is so. Uh, I think because the art style is so detailed. I like. Mm-hmm. I know this cross hatching is very difficult to do, but it seemed more humorous and like lighthearted, mm-hmm. despite the artwork leading to a more gruesome or like realistic tone. So I don't know that yeah. contrast. I found really interesting. Yeah, I think, like, while this was just a pretty serious story about, like, murder and betrayal and stuff like that, I agree that some of the whimsical stuff of everybody being in kilts and and things, and also just everybody speaking with these phonetic Scottish accents really kind of made it uh, a little bit sillier than than it could have been normally, I think. But I guess that's Judge Dredd, I mean, right? It's it's got to have a little bit of silliness in there. Absolutely. I think that that merger of the serious and the silly is a really important part of a good dread, of a good dread or dread related story. You know, if it's too, if it's too serious, it just becomes a bummer, you know, and so keeping some jokes in there or just some little silly things, lighten things up, you know, it provides a little bit, it it leavens the darkness enough that you can sort of keep going, going through, through these dark times, you know. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. And speaking of dark times, let's go to story three, Armitage. Staying in Britsit as well, or Brit- the, uh, the Britsit area. Script robot Dave Stone, art robot Charlie Adlard, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. On the trail of the perpetrator of a mass killing at an upper class party, um, all the clues that Armitage and Treasure Steel have found so far seem to point to the most, crimi- the most powerful criminal in Britsit, Ethel Dragos, uh, Ethel Dragoson, who, um, and that's who, ju- who Armitage and Steele are after right now. They arrive at his estate and just start beating up guards and receptionists, aided by Armitage's computer hacker contact, Lisa Marsh, to get through the elevators and stuff. Again, good punching here as we cut to pathologist Mary Green, who's identified one body, one of the bodies at the party as uh, Edmund Sloop, who's the vice chairman of a company called Tetracom, but not really an important one because they say he's like, oh, he's the vice president of pencil sharpening or something like that. <laughs> um, 
They also, this one dead woman who's been kind of mysterious, um, she was definitely shot post-mortem after she died and her body was repositioned. And then there's this, um, like, baggie with a circular deal with, like, a seal or a crest or something was found on her body. And Mary seems very excited about it. Meanwhile, Armitage has punched his way to Drago, who, when he walks in on him, is clearly a, a Baron Harkonnen from Dune type of guy. <laughs> He's sitting on this, like, leather chair in a room full of pipes and those shell chair things, which could be fancy toilets, Eli. I'm not, I'm right. not super sure. Yeah, there's they got that look. Yeah. Yeah, he's got, yeah, he's got pipes and needles I'd, and all kinds of stuff here. I'd pee in one, I guess is the best way to say it. Absolutely, yeah. I know he's got a lot of receptacles for bodily fluids going on here mm-hmm. one way or another. Mm-hmm. Armitage threatens Drago and like put, like put grabs his neck with his hand and stuff. But the crime boss isn't worried and says Armitage is all bluster. Um, Drago says he wouldn't – he's not connected to that massacre is all and Armitage seems to believe him and stalks off as Drago then talks to Treasure Steel and says that it's – like basically from what he says, it seems Drago and Armitage have made an arrangement of some kind. But if Armitage ever hurts Drago, th- that would in, in turn hurt a lot of innocent people. But we aren't clear about what the heck that actually fully means, I guess. <laughs> Anyway, outside, Steele tries to confront or to comfort Armitage for what just happened, but he knocks her away and to the ground. Steele's getting up as Armitage gets a phone call that Mary has found something, and have you ever heard of the Forbidden Citadel? I haven't, so I'm excited to find out about it. (laughs) In her journal, Treasure uh, who. Uh, sorry, Treasure's narrating this story through her journal, like that's what the narration boxes are. And she's clearly worried about the encounter between Armitage and Dragosan. Be, like, what, what happened there and like how Armitage seemed like afraid or worried or something about what Drago could do was a, was a, a, um, gap in his otherwise solid, tough exterior. But anyway, they're off to meet Mary, the pathologist. They're at some kind of of a train station and Armitage is acting like nothing happened. Mary tells us about the woman that was killed before she was shot and then repositioned maybe to cover up the real cause of her death and identifies that circle thing we we saw last issue as a solid gold sovereign coin. A coin that's been out of circulation in Britsit and I guess England thus um, for centuries. But this one was minted last year, which is very interesting. And that kind of money is only used at the Forbidden uh, Citadel. So I guess Armitage and Treasure go to head to that Citadel, despite its forbiddenness, warning Mary not to tell Senior Judge Warner that's telling him to like keep his head down during this investigation. Right. I mean, naming a Forbidden Citadel, you were expecting company. Like, no one just doesn't go to the Forbidden Citadel. So I mean, I mean yeah, it is kind of the Streisand effect or whatever, where by calling it the Forbidden Citadel, you're guaranteeing that people are, you know, you're going to get gawkers eventually coming to right. see what's going on with this thing, for sure. Right. That's why you just call it, like, the Plain Citadel or the Boring right. Citadel. And exactly. No one, no, one, no one heads over, you know? Right. <laughs> Anyway, as they are on the train, Armitage thinks over the case. 48 dead, 
corporate and underworld connections, now royal connections. They must be missing something here, something important. And I think we see, we at least see what it is, even if we don't know what's going on, as we see those goblin dudes from last time, or goblin-like dudes, dragging this, dragging this body across a dark bridge or aqueduct or something, as they chant about removing various physical flaws from someone, but then they have to be quiet as they enter the fortress or i don't know the home of this strange of a strange glowing figure who's in a very dark room with skeletal like wings saying they're an angel of god the metatron and various other religious things basically (laughs) the goblin dudes leave the body in front of this self-claimed angel as then tubes with needles and stuff snake down and eject into the body's neck and that doesn't seem good, Eli. I don't know what's going right. on there, but I don't like it. Whoop. All right. Eventually, the train deposits Armitage and Steel deep in the undersea tunnels that link Britsit, Atlantis, and Mega City One. This sort of transatlantic uh, tunnel, basically. Atlantis is a undersea station sort of at the midpoint between the east coast of the U.S. and England, essentially. The detectives get out of the train there. Apparently, they're at a bomb shelter or fortress that was built by England's royalty during the Rad Wars, and they moved there during the most recent English Civil War. A bunch of guards with swords on their waists appear and tell Armitage to leave, like, you don't have any authority here, we're an autonomous state! But Armitage threatens to come back with a search warrant and a tactical team, so they relent and escort him into the palace, And we just see it from the outside, a very cool series of, like, golden underwater domes and tubes and stuff. I'm super excited to see this place. And next time on Armitage, this other Eden. I'm pumped, honestly. This really cool. Citadel where the... Kate, where like the uh, the royal line of England's been living for several, possibly like a hundred years or more, presumably right. getting real weird <laughs> as time's gone by. I'm pretty stoked about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think also seeing another side of Armitage, I think I'm really looking forward to as well. Yeah, uh, he's I th- always yeah. been way too cool to just eh, whatever. I'm old. I I got this. But seeing yeah. him like, oh no, something I can't control, like. Yeah, seeing this this crack in his other in his otherwise rock solid exterior is pretty interesting, I think. Like, you know, it really sort of one of these things that that sort of teases revolu- revelations to come. Like, well, how are Dragoson and and Armitage linked? What did they do? What happened? Why is he afraid of him? You know, that kind of stuff that I think is, yeah, like you said, is really exciting and something that we can really, you know, something to really look forward to for these characters as we sort of learn more about them. All right. Now, let's go to the place where the characters are the readers themselves. Covers, editorials, and dreadlines. <laughs> so, issue 13. Johnny Biker returns as Dean Ornstrom draws just a massive Judge Dredd on the cover of this issue. His, ba- his badge has been, worn off, has been torn off or something, so... The chain from his um, badge is sort of hanging loose, and he's just so wide, so wide, Eli. You know, go sideways through doors, I think. Right. (laughs) 
the editorial teases a new series of Heavy Metal Dread coming soon with art by John Hinklinton, which will presumably be quite disturbing. I'm excited. Um, and then uh, the credit text says, smash it. Mid prog, there's another ad for Al's Baby, and it's just I'm on the hook for Al's Baby too at this point, Eli. They've been advertising it constantly. We'll finally get it next episode, I believe. Uh, Mid issue, there's an article pr- promoting a bunch of new graphic novels from 2000 AD with stories from there and the magazine, including Young Death and Raptor, which I'm surprised about just because that was sort of sort of a small story, but I think they thought it was cool enough that they got to collect it right away. Right, dreadlocks or something. Uh, yeah, something. I don't know why. Like, I didn't think it was that great, but I, it's it's interesting to see what gets made into graphic novels because they clearly have a choice about what they do and don't make comp, make collections of, and they must think that right. that, that those collection that that story is pretty good to give it its own collection like that. Right. Um, Dreadlines also ha- – um, so Dreadlines, which are the letters from readers, one letter has an extensive like two-column breakdown of all the thrills in the first nine issues. Another a- another asks that the pu- – like basically is worried that something bad – that they'll cancel the uh, the magazine or something and talk about maybe make the Dread story longer just in case. People like that. Um, another letter has some deep thoughts about fascism and Dread. And there's also what seems to be a missed connection letter of like, I met this guy on a, tr- on a, on a ferry and he likes Judge Dredd. Can you tell him to get in contact with me? So <laughs> Mark Oldham, I hope Sibby McBain found you eventually right. 30 oh, years man. ago. That, that would have been a great story. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, there's also an ad for back issues of the magazine, which is pretty unusual. Usually they don't sell back issues of these comics, but now they're selling old copies all the way back to issue one, actually, though that one is in short supply, of course. Issue 14, Trick or Treat. Arthur Ranson draws Anderson against a background of old-timey movie posters, including, I think, the full slate of Universal monsters. You're like uh, Lon Chaney Wolfman and Boris Karloff, uh, Frankenstein, Bela Lugosi, um, Dracula, all those guys. I see Bride of Frankenstein in the corner there. Um, It's a great great piece. yeah, and I really like – and then Anderson, by um, drawn by Arthur Ranson's in the foreground. And if you check it out, actually, all of the – the monsters' heads are all positioned in a way that they're looking at Anderson um, <laughs> as, as she stands there, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, the editorial plugs the return of Mrs. Gunderson from Young Death coming soon. Um, and the credit text says, Happy Halloween. It's kind of a fun thing. Like – Halloween's actually kind of a is still kind of a new idea in England. It definitely was in um in the early nineties like this, from what I've heard. Like I feel like like I've talked to 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 to, to British folks who talk about like, yeah, we saw it in E.T. or something. Like we saw it in American movies and we're like, hey, that seems awesome. Like I'd <laughs> like I would like to acquire candy and dress up in a silly way once a That's- year. That's fine. That's fun. I like that better than even the American version of Halloween, which is like this kind of like mix of a bunch of different stuff and then mm-hmm. just kind of like boils down to buy candy, decorate, dress up. All right. Don't don't ask any more questions. So I, think it's, I, like, I think it's I think it's still pretty – I don't know. I just think it's really interesting when like because – America, we export our culture so much. Places that don't have a holiday or something pick it up. I guess it's like right. I like I, I sort of liken it to how they're real into Christmas in Japan or something like that. 
even though right. you sort of then have pictures of like a real buff Santa, like fighting Colonel Sanders or something like right. that in the course of it, you know. <laughs> it is wacky. <laughs> Crazy time. Like, you know, and I mean, I'm sure it goes the other way where Americans, start, you know, I'm sure, you know, we've done our share of things that we're definitely copying from other people in oh, real yeah. wrong ways, you know. I'd say most of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen, yeah, we're, we got a whole country that's poorly aping England or whatever, you know, there's, right. there's no shame in our game. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, Mid-issue, again, more Al's baby. Uh, and then there's a big two-page ad for Amiga Computers as well as an ad for Red Dwarf Magazine and for a 2000 AD-themed comic book shop called Mach 1 Comics in Kelmsford. And then this issue ends with an ad for the 1993 yearbooks, which we covered a few a few episodes ago. All right. Exciting non, non-thrill stuff, Eli. That's yeah. always what we got to go get through. But that means that we can now move on to Story 4, Heavy Metal Dread. Script robot John Wagner and Alan Grant. Art robot Dean Ormstron. Lettering robot Tom Frame. All right. So we last saw – so this story is called The Return of Johnny Biker. And we last saw Johnny Biker in issue 19 of volume one of the magazine, if you recall, Eli – where there was this badass motorcyclist that challenged Dredd and then went off the side of Dead Juve's curve oh, yeah. and died and was turned into a furnace by this biker chick, basically. Kept him burning in her living room or something. Right. That's so awesome that we're returning to that. <laughs> it's such a weird choice, but yeah, I guess here we are, you know. <laughs> It seems something happened to her, but Johnny Biker remains as the centerpiece of her living room and is now being shown to renters, I think. Like like a realtor is like showing them around the apartment, I guess. Um, but there's a story behind it. The return of Johnny Biker. <laughs> we see a bald dude on a motorcycle whistling his way through Mega City 1 as Dredd checks him out and then asks Control. And he recognizes him and asks Control for the file on Johnny Biker. They confirm the story I just told about him being, you know, dead and now a furnace. But that makes it weird because he's now alive and driving. Definitely. Right. Too badass. Yeah, it is pretty bad, especially when they start driving real fast after each other. Dredd goes after him, using his turbo boost on his lawmaster. Johnny hits the hits Dead Man Curve at 330 miles an hour, with Dredd pursuing at 350. They both go round the curve at 370 miles an hour, and we see Dredd wipe out, like crash. You know, he skids out on the side on the side of the road in his motorcycle, while Johnny keeps going completing the curve and topping out at 400 miles an hour which doesn't even make sense because if you're making turns you sort of naturally slow down uh, like physics doesn't really let you accelerate through curves eli i've, I've learned this through video games like you know it's a whole thing <laughs> but john the badassery of this particular biker allows you right. to just exceed and physics he doesn't need to worry about stuff like that yeah he's he's just that cool you're right i, I right. was a fool i was a fool to doubt <laughs> eli absolutely <laughs> uh dread picks himself up off the ground and sends some judges to investigate they find johnny back on his plinth but the woman that was once his girlfriend is dead she's been ran over in her living room a giant tire mark going through her and leading back to the plinth which is odd 
<laughs> but now she's dead, so they got to list the apartment, the realtor. Then I guess decides to just go full ghost story and says that while Johnny is dead, he's also haunted. And you can see him in nights flying through the sky at nights when the moon is high, racing across the heavens. Which, listen... I don't know a lot about like being a realtor, Eli, and, and, and how you sell apartments. Right. But I know you're supposed to downplay any possible hauntings in the house you're trying to sell, especially if said haunting killed the previous um, tenant, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe they got through all those tropes and, you know, obviously the family hides it and then they're, you know, everyone's haunted. So maybe you know there's a, a group of people looking for homes that are haunted. Like that's the that's the selling point. People th- in Mega City are bored. You know they want to want a little more excitement. Uh, that's fair, guys. Actually, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess having a ghost would be a good conversation piece. Right. Exactly. <laughs> till you till it kills you. Yeah. But yeah. All the way but, till then, you're the cool kid. Yeah, and I guess maybe if if you're cool with them. Um, like, if you're cool with Johnny Biker occasionally getting out to ride across the midnight skies, that he wouldn't even try to kill you that much, I don't yeah. think. Just right. don't stand in the path between him and the door. You know? <laughs> right. Anyway, the potential buyers or whoever don't seem very charmed by this story and head out not believing it. But then, indeed, the sort of the camera pulls back and we see above the Mega City One skyline, Johnny Biker flying through the sky across the moon. It's very romantic, especially when we see that his, his best gal, now young again, is riding in the seat behind him on his bike. Oh, that is so sweet. <laughs> Just a sweet tale of murder and driving motorcycles real fast, Eli. Right. You gotta like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man yeah listen always important to keep these feelings of romance going eli yeah um <laughs> you all your skins off and you died once don't let that stop you no haunt yeah. your spat haunt your your lover kill them too and then you know <laughs> uh sec third then, honeymoon you know, yeah, after you're dead. ghost heavily ab- happily ever after i suppose yeah. i i don't know whatever that's how it goes, I guess. But remember, just re- just remember to obey the law. And speaking of uh, <laughs> lawbreakers, Eli, oh man, tenuous, tenuous. Let's go to story five, Judge Hershey. Script robot Peter Cornwall, art robot Yan Shimini, lettering robot Gordon Robson. This we is the first black and white one. Yeah, another black and white one and the first multi-issue solo story for Judge Hershey, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, a ton of black and white in this one. I feel like we've had one black and white story in all of these issues. They they don't have to be black and white. Like there right. there ha- there have been times where stories in 2000 have been black and white cuz they only have so many color pages. But this is clearly a, an active choice to make this a black and white story. Yeah. And also, um, me uh, being a manga fan and a webcomic creator, I know that uh, fans tend to like black and white less, like just as a general mm-hmm. sense. Like color is just more attractive, brings in more people. People are just more curious. They'll spend more time just looking and giving it a shot if it is in color. Um so I, I find that yeah. an interesting stance for them to take. That, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even in 2000 AD, which is mostly black and white, um, 
they've re- released some of their biggest stories in versions that have been colorized, I think, just mm. to make them more appealing to a mass audience. I think def- mm. you're right that black and white does end up making you appeal to a smaller audience, I think, just because people don't like it mm. that much. Right. But I like it because, listen, right. exactly. I'm, they're I'm, all wrong. Yeah, because I'm a cool hipster, so I like things that other people are turned off by. That's my move, Eli. That's what what gives me power. Uh, <laughs> this story is called Death Squads, and it starts off on a dark and stormy night at the Hunter S. Thompson block, where a side judge sleeps uneasily and has visions of a mysterious figure putting a note on a body – then realizing that the side judge is watching them and disappearing with another figure into the night. Elsewhere, and I should say it's a, like it's a full like rainstorm, thunder and lightning kind of night. And it seems like that's happening because it was called down to put the kibosh on a Sisters for Democracy march. Basically, like, ah, oh, they rained out the march as Judge Hershey walks on, looks on and sort of sees what's happening. Suddenly, though, she hears gunfire and rushes to find a couple dead people, one with a card of some kind stuck in their teeth. I don't think we get to see it, actually. Um, and as she looks around, sort of wonders at what happened, at a fancy desk behind a giant air duct, we see two reporters discussing the story on the cover of their magazine, News Leak, alleging that the death of Democrat activist Tito Varco, or sorry, that the um, abduction, that his abduction was done by the judges. Um, they say their evidence is rock solid. They've got a witness and stuff. As we see some judges watching their conversation through a bug hidden in the big air duct. We see Hershey then being called to meet with um, side judge Darling at the Hunter S. Thompson block. Um, and then some SJ, those same judges, some SJS judges, um, which is, which SJS is, um, I forget what it's called, like special judicial service, something like that. But they're basically internal affairs for Mega City One, Eli. They're sort of the judges that judge the judges, basically. Like oh. if you're a judge who breaks the law, then SJS um, goes after you. And because of that, they've got these cool skull helmets. That's basically how it goes. Like Nice. Yeah. Like this – I. I think it's the first time we're seeing this version of the uniform where they don't just have skull helmets, but these big, like, triangular badges kind of built into their shoulder pads. That's going to be a look that's going to stick with them um, until the present day, basically, which I think is is a cool look, um, but sort of different from the standard judge look as well. Agreed. Mm. So they talk about being suspicious of Hershey for some reason. This one um, SJS judge with a beard says, like an unseen needle, she entered my eye. And I should say that this judge looks pretty similar to the one from Judge Darling's vision at the start of the story. On her way to the Hunter S. Thompson block, Hershey notices a hover pod following her and calls in its description. At the same time, we see Chief Judge Magruder making another appearance, this time being shown a slide of a criminal named Raul Belcher, who is a terrorist and leader of NAS, the nihilist anarchist scum. (laughs) And it seems that they're talking about this being the kind of criminal in need of like calling, I guess, of maybe being killed. And Magruder also tells SJS Judge Tooth, who's standing in shadow, we can't really see anything except for his badge, but 
I'll like bet I'll bet you like five bucks that it's the same judge that we've been seeing in these situations for the rest of this of this story, Eli. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pretty pretty clear. <laughs> but he he's Magruder says that he should add uh, some young and dissatisfied citizens as less as well as older, more established criminals. Which seems disturbing. Anderson arrives at Darling's apartment and Darling tells Hershey that the killer she sensed last night might have been judges. She's only telling Hershey this because they were pals at the Academy. And she describes the killer as a powerful, assured leader. Um, then Hershey gets a call. The hover pod that was following her has been found burnt out. She, she can go investigate, but they also mention that it's strange that it was fought, that it, that, um, that, it, that anything's happening to it because it was stolen from the Justice Department central pound 24 hours ago. So this is a, it was like impounded by the judges and then stolen and used to observe her, which points to being an inside job. Dun, dun, dun. Gotta be careful. More Hershey to come. <laughs> I think this is fun. Like, I don't know. I um, Interesting intrigue story for Judge Hershey here. Right. Yeah. Which I, I'm I get, also giving a lot of point for the uh, art. They use the black and white, and they are not skimping on the black. There's, like, black cars, black hoods, people in shadow, black cats running places. Yeah, like yeah, it. definitely. Yeah, like, a darling has a black cat that's running all over the place. That uh, hover pod thing was really jet black, which was cool. Um, the like the dark and stormy night at the start of the story was pretty fun as well. Um, right. Yeah, good good use of the black and white here. I think yeah, for sure. There, there's, there's like this interaction when you have black and white that you need to decide on if something is black enough to make black. Like mm. you have something that's gray or green or like it's like is it? So I. <laughs> So I take it very bold when someone's like, boom, that's black too. And this is – everything, everything's black. Def, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's an interesting idea. Def, for sure. Man, <laughs> these colors, they're complicated. Right. <laughs> and speaking of things not being black and white, Eli, oh. because, because they're morally ambiguous and in color, <laughs> let's talk about story six, Anderson, side of vision. Script robot Alan Grant, art robot Arthur Ranson, letting robot Annie Parkhouse, Halloween in Mega City One. As we bump into side judge Cassandra Anderson rolling on her lawmaster through the partying streets of Mega City. When she's like you, she doesn't like how commercial Halloween's become, Eli. You know? <laughs> she even goes so far as to spell it uh Halloween Halloween, like oh. with an apostrophe in the middle of the E's, you know. Right. I also want That's to like, draw attention to the uh, the pumpkin judge uh, in the background. There's someone who's dressed up as a judge, but instead of mm -hmm. a face, it's a pumpkin. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of cool costumes. I, which <laughs> I think some of them might just be like the cover sort of traced from um, old movie posters and stuff. But also just kind right. of partying citizens and stuff. I think it's a cool story. Um, but anyway, Anderson is arriving at the Justice Department's Psy School, where she meets cadets Coran and Leslie, who are these psychic twins that we met in, or that, that readers met in a previous Anderson story called Triad, which was back in a 1989, so Space Spinner episodes 203 to 205. They were sort of these, um, twins with psychic powers that were being manipulated by some so some sovsit judges to try to destroy the city as you do you know yeah right <laughs> anyway 
they're really happy to see Anderson and they all hug and it seems like they're about to they're going to go on a trip on, on a on, on a little trip or a field trip today and the few, the twins friends Ronica or the twins friend Ronica wants to come as well she doesn't speak and just seems to stand around sullenly but i think it's also they're commu- they're all communicating telepathically here <laughs> after but before they leave Anderson gets a stern talking to by um clear school headmistress judge prim about decorum and i really like that this old lady judge clearly scares and scares the daylights out of anderson just from interactions they must have had when anderson was just a girl you know um and so the four women walk out into the night holding hands it's kind of nice i guess the girls are maybe around nine or so with anderson um it seems these kids are allowed out four times a year though parental visits are discouraged and Anderson's just kind of spending some time just having some fun with these kids. She tells them to call Miss Prim, Miss Grimm, which is pretty solid for right. teacher naming and things like yeah. that. Um, you know, she's, you know, I mean, even like we saw last episode and we've seen just sort of through Anderson's stories, she's, of course, very back and forth or, you know, what, like not convinced on the um, inhuman ways that the judges um, comport themselves and stuff. And so right. she's just kind of trying to give these kids a like not a normal life, but just a, a chance to lighten up a little bit and see some of the world and stuff. And I think it's nice. I don't know, like these moments of them just sort of moving through the city and being happy. I thought were were pretty were pretty neat. Yeah, uh, as as a as a sentimental old man or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I find Judge Anderson as one of the more interesting characters. Uh, I just love that duality mm-hmm. of being in a system, but not wanting to change the system, but then having to abide by it, but then not liking mm-hmm. it, what you're doing. Like that, I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely. a very human character. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's – I mean, it, it, it's part of what makes her such an opposite of Judge Dredd, right? And that, right. you know, her very questioning and, and and not taking the system so seriously makes her such a counterpoint to Dredd where the law and being a judge is – he, he – there's literally nothing else, else to right. him basically. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So they go to a movie theater showing cartoons and it seems like it could be fun, but instead the theater is being held up by the Faye Weldon Bad Girls Gang on jet-powered brooms. <laughs> and Faye Weldon is an author that wrote a book called The Life and Loves of a She-Devil, um, which is a very <laughs> – like I guess um, – like they made a movie about it, um, where the she devil was uh, Roseanne Barr, and like her husband got taken by I think Faye Dunaway or something. But it's like really like sort of classically beautiful, um, like movie star lady, and so then she plots revenge and gets it and stuff like that. Nice. I don't know, but nice. we've actually we've actually seen the Faye Weldon block before in a previous Anderson story where she fought or where she encountered a woman who killed her husband. And, and then went like full Wonder Woman kind of. Um, and we've seen these jet brooms before at, or actually in a previous Dread story where he fought some mutants who broke – who snuck into Mega City 1 during Halloween by pretending that their mutant deformations were Halloween costumes. And then Dread had to like uh, kill them all basically. <laughs> one of them – one of them was covered in fur like a Chewbacca and um, – 
his fly his uh, jet his jet broom went out of control and he flew into a big fireworks display and caught on fire. It was pretty awesome, Eli. I'm not gonna lie to you about that one. Um <laughs> Anyway, Anderson has the kids wait be Wait, wait behind her and goes to arrest these bad girls, but then one swoops in and snatches Radhika. Um, the, a hostage situation breaks out, and Anderson says she doesn't make deals with perps, surrender or die, but the gang leader calls her bluff and drops Ronica down like the center of the skyway, presumably falling thousands of stories below. Oh, God. <laughs> Um, then the bad girls open fire on Anderson and the twins, fearing for the judge's life, link hands and start chanting, leave her alone, leave her, over and over again, until they power themselves up enough to shoot psychic eye beams, which kill the gang members. Pretty awesome image here of just like them standing there and all this power arcing out and killing all these flying uh, witches, basically. <laughs> Love it. Eye beams, yeah. Eli. It's good times. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're really sad for having killed them and they like start crying. Anderson hugs them and comforts them and basically says, like, listen, don't feel bad about those criminals you just killed. Like, feel bad about Veronica that fell to her death. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> right. <laughs> in what I think is a really nice moment, the twins then start comforting Anderson because they say, oh, Veronica's not dead. She's fine. She can fly. She can levitate. And right. we see Veronica come floating back up to the skyway perfectly fine, which I think is a really nice – listen, this could have been a real bummer story, but now <laughs> it's a nice story, Eli, right. you know? It's just about I- Halloween – Eye lasers and the magic of childhood. Right. Absolutely. Listen, I I feel like I've read a, 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 quite a few stories in the page of these comics where they just kill that kid. You know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm glad they didn't hear. You know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll take what I can get. You know. Anderson says this is a baptism by fire for the for, for the kids, and she hopes that they'll keep some of that sadness for the people they kill once they become judges. Because obviously, once they do, they'll be killing a lot of people, and hopefully, it's not, it doesn't come easy to them. Basically, um, and so in the end, she returns the kid to Miss Prim and rides off into the night again. More just sort of questions and worries about the Justice Department and stuff like that. But still, I think this was a fun story, and Judge Anderson will be back in early 1993. Right. I like <laughs> oh, it. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like this one a lot, actually. Just sort of a one-off Halloween kind of story, I guess. <laughs> right. But that said, Eli, we've reached the end of our thrills or stories for this episode. And thus, I must know, what were your top and bottom stories for issues for judge red magazine volume two issues 13 and 14 what are your what, what do you got um i'm having trouble with my top because i like mechanismo but i also like mm-hmm. judge anderson those are my mm-hmm. i'm having a lot of trouble picking between those two i think mm-hmm. i'm going to go with judge anderson because that one's not going to come up again i can just give it the title and then it's going to mm-hmm. go retire happily whereas mechanismo i think we're still going to get into some more stuff yeah, so we've got. I can. We'll have we'll have time to give Mechanismo a top thrill if you want to next time, right. you know. But counterpoint, yep. there could be other good stuff, and you want to give that a top. Right. Ooh, so. There's Mechanismo. strategy involved. <laughs> Mechanismo with the art and the uh, theme and the setting is uh, proving to be one that I'm really enjoying. So mm-hmm. uh, they're gonna. It's gonna be hard for them to, to top it. I mean, that's 
It's just building in my mind. It's nice. like the opposite of um, uh, uh, Wah, where it was like, oh, Devlin Wah, yeah, we but started I'm, I'm real strong, res- and yeah, and, <laughs> and I'm like building resentment in a weird way, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's when I'm I'm feeling good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you got for bottom here? That's what I want to know. Mm. Uh, asking these hard questions. Mm. Uh, let's see. Now I wasn't as big a fan of um, uh, Calhab, um, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's not its fault. Like it didn't, <laughs> it didn't <particularly laughs> do anything wrong. It was just like, eh, mm. what's going yeah. on here? Uh, <laughs> but I think. Uh, when I'm honest with myself, I did. I wasn't as big. I liked that one more than I liked Judge Hershey's story. Um, mm-hmm. I think there were. I said I think it was more of a setup thing. Yeah, but it was like a lot of stuff happening that I'm like, all right. So like you know, it, it didn't. It wasn't um, satisfying yet. There was mm-hmm. a lot of setup. Look at this person in shadow. Check out yeah. this cat. What could this be about? Um, so yeah, I'm, I, admitting that it's a setup uh, chapter, it's still like oh. Well, it, it, it just didn't grab me. Uh, yeah. So I think I'll put that on bottom. That's fair. Yeah, setups, you know, th- listen, as much as I, I, I'll give an excuse of something being like, oh, yeah, this is a setup, whatever. But like, you know, listen, it's got to be – the story's got to be good week to week as well. You know, we right. can't – you know, it's a, it's an immediate business, you know. Right. <laughs> it's a, mm. If you're waiting two weeks between issues, then having one that's just all set up is still a disappointment, I think. Right. Yeah, like you could, and there are ways to solve it. Like you, we've uh, we liked America, and that whole setup was they took mm-hmm. a lot of setup, but they just were able to hit you with the weird stuff first. So you're like, what the heck is going on? I'm yeah, I'm invested. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely ways. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I, and I think that's sort of the, it, it is a little bit. It is kind of a difficult thing. So I think it's yeah. sort of a mark of uh, of di- of a di- of different levels of writers. You know how much you can really, how much you can make a setups uh, like these a setup section of the story still feel right. engaging and like that you want to keep going through as opposed to just being like, all right, like you know, <laughs> like. I don't know if I I don't know if you're like this Eli but I've gone to re- I've I've eaten places where I've had a salad and like a main course and I'm really just eating that salad to justify enjoying the main course or something like that you know and so like but I've also been places where the salad's really good and you want to eat that you know right so yes. I think there can be a difference where sometimes the sh- sometimes that opening thing can be a chore versus mm-hmm. other situations where it can also be a, a, a an important part of the meal. You know? Right, man, uh, that's a great analogy. Listen, once again, I'm lost. I've I've lost myself with my own metaphor. You know, it's a, <laughs> a whole thing. I, I think, oh man, pe- I think people are going to study this episode and write books about that analogy. You just gave. I got a lot of stuff for sure. <laughs> I think for me. Um, I'll definitely give Anderson my top thrill. I really like this story. Um, I really like I, – I, I love Arthur Ranson's artwork, just full stop. He's one of my favorite artists that we're seeing these days. I love how he draws Anderson. And I thought the way that we saw Anderson's interactions with these kids was really kind – it was kind of heartwarming almost, right? I liked I, – I, I had a smile on my face with those moments. I thought it was nice. Absolutely agree. Um, for my bottom, I think I'll say Heavy Metal Dread, I guess. 
I feel like we've seen a lot of them, and I would describe myself as not a huge fan of of Dean Ormston. I guess I, I feel like he's uh I I I feel like I can see why he's popular in 1992, but he's not really for me. I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair. That's valid. And I wasn't really into this story the first time, so it coming back, it didn't really grab <laughs> me. Really, I right. was like, okay, yeah, Johnny there, Biker there again. I guess, yeah, right. especially because it's very just. It's just sort of a ghost story or something. Right. And I, exactly. I, it just wasn't, I did, it just didn't blow me away, I guess, or something. But yeah, anyway. Well, we, idea for our story will make it so that a side judge has to solve the case of this biker guy and like exercise him. And then, you know, we'll, we'll go that route. <laughs> Gone forever. All right. right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, awesome. Oh, sorry. Nice. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, I had forgotten that you already gave me a top, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, Anderson. Yeah, no, we're we're together on Anderson, but splitting nice. our bottoms, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Titch, or the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at BigMegOne.com. Feel free to contact us at BigMegOne at gmail.com on the 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. For all those, check out Big Meg One with one spelled out, and you'll find us. Also, feel free to drop a rating or review where you listen to us, or if you uh, suggested someone looking for a cool podcast. Come on, why not? This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardinghan, Zam Kip Miller, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradaline. That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and receive a ton of excellent rewards, including advanced episodes, coverage of modern 2080 in the magazine, and even monthly Q&As with Fox and myself. Come back next time as Mechanismo is on the beat. Mrs. Gunderson returns, Hershey investigates death squads, and Al's baby is here for Blood on the Bib. <laughs> and until then, I'm Conrad Darieli, and we are Big Meg One. Drunk it! Drunk it!